Welcome to the Bridge to God's Word podcast with Carla Unseth, a linguistic consultant for missionaries working in Bible translation. We invite you to visit us at www.bridgetogodsword.org to learn more about Carla's ministry. Now, here's linguistic consultant Carla Unseth. Hi, and welcome to Building a Bridge to God's Word. This is Carla Unseth. As you know, we have been in a series on the story of the Bible. How does it all fit together, and what are the themes that unite the whole Bible as one story? So we've said before that the theme of the Bible is God's glory, and specifically how God's glory is revealed as he restores humanity into relationship with himself. God created the earth as perfect and peaceful, but that was destroyed by sin, and the rest of the Bible shows the story of how the problem of sin is solved so that humans can once again be in perfect peace and in harmony in their relationship with God. So the Bible tells both sides of the story. First, how humans try to solve the problem on their own, and second, how God unfolds his plan to solve the problem. So in last month's episode, we talked about the period of judges in Israel when we saw whether it was possible to solve the sin problem by following the law as mediated by judges. But we quickly saw that as the judges became further and further from a a personal relationship with God themselves, which Moses had, but as it went, they slowly became further from God, things also slowly fell apart. So it was pretty clear that following the law on its own was not going to work to solve the sin problem. So today, we're going to see if a king mediating the law will solve the sin problem. The stories we're going to talk about today are found in 1 and 2 Samuel. And it's actually interesting because we're basically told the answer to this question right away in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 6 through 9. So at this point quick overview of the first eight chapters of Samuel. Samuel is a judge and priest over Israel. He's a man who follows after God and has restored Israel after lots of sinfulness, many seasons of sinfulness. But as Samuel gets older, the Israelites ask him to appoint a king for them so that they can be like all the other nations around them. So it says in 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9, When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord said to him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me, since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So the rights of the kings that God talks about at the end are things like taking their children to be servants and soldiers, taking land for his own use, also charging taxes. But the Israelites want a king anyway. And as it clearly says in this passage, God says they're rejecting me as a king. In other words, asking for a king is rejecting God, and I think we've pretty much already seen that rejecting God is definitely not a solution to the sin problem. But God does give them a king, and I think, again, this is God saying, okay, I will show you how your own way is not going to work before I reveal to you my plan. 
So when we look in the, the book of First Samuel, we see three main kings of Israel. So I know there's lots of kings that follow that, and it's actually even kind of hard to keep them straight. But those kings, after these three main kings, are kind of the story of how things go awry. <laughs> but before that, let's talk about these three main kings where actually things seem like they might be going well. So the first king, which we all know about, is King Saul. He is chosen actually basically because he's tall. If we look in 1 Samuel 10, 23 and 24, it says, They ran and got him from there. They're looking for Saul because he was hiding when he was appointed king. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. So he, he looks like a king is basically the reason that he's chosen. But even though he seems to be chosen for the wrong reasons, it actually is God's choice. And it starts out looking good. Initially, Saul has military victories. He seems to lead Israel well. But we do also begin to see some defects in Saul's character. We see pride and dishonesty and a lack of integrity. And that culminates in blatant disobedience to God. In one final story where Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and sacrifice to the Lord before battle, and Samuel's taking a long time. So from a human standpoint, what Saul does next makes sense. His troops are getting restless, and some of them might even be deserting. And he's starting to get worried that Samuel won't get there in time. So he does the sacrifice himself. And again, from a human standpoint, it actually seems like a good move. He's taking initiative and leadership, and he's doing the sacrifice and honoring God rather than just going into battle on, on his own. But we soon realize that it's actually a big problem. It is blatant disobedience to God, who was instructed that it must be a priest who makes the sacrifice. And so even though Saul's decision seems wise in a worldly sense, in reality, it's a very bad decision because it disobeys God. And at that point, God actually rejects Saul as king, and we begin to see Saul's downfall. So at the same time that Saul is rejected as king, God chooses someone else to be king instead. And I think it's interesting because here again, God shows us what our plan would look like, that is having a king who looks like a king. And then when it falls apart, God actually institutes his own plan. So instead of having an impressive, good-looking young man as a king, who ultimately becomes arrogant and disobedient, God chooses someone else, someone who's insignificant, the youngest among his brothers, not particularly good-looking, but someone who follows the Lord wholeheartedly, and that, of course, is David. And David does not immediately become king, but the time before he becomes king reveals his character and reveals how much he trusts God. Because actually, before he's anointed king, he spends a lot of time being chased down by Saul, who wanted to kill him because he knew that he was God's next choice. But David reveals his trust in God and his, his humility because even though he's given multiple opportunities to kill Saul, he doesn't do it. He understands that Saul is the Lord's anointed and he refuses to go against the Lord's plan, even to try to make happen what it seems like God's new plan is, and that is to have him as king. Instead, he waits for God's timing. 
And after Saul dies, he actually mourns for Saul, which shows his compassion. And then he takes care of Saul's last living relative, which shows his kindness. So we can clearly see that David was a great king, and he is actually known as Israel's greatest king. And when he did finally begin to reign, he was the one who united the kingdom of Israel, and actually he was the one who moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. So after he does that, he comes to God and says, it isn't right that I live in a palace, but the ark of God is still in a tent. So he asks God's permission to build him a house, to build a house for God. And in an amazing reversal, God replies to David that he doesn't want David to build him a house, but instead he will build David's house. He makes a covenant with David. And again, this is an unconditional covenant like the covenant he made to Abraham. It's based only on God himself. He says in 2 Samuel 7, starting at the second half of verse 11, it says, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. This is a key promise in the biblical story because of this promise of a future king that will rule forever. So I want to point out a few things to you first. If we look at this passage, what exactly is promised? So the first thing in verse 12 that's promised is a descendant. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. And this word descendant, I haven't talked about this a whole lot, but it actually is the word seed. And what's really significant about that is that Eve was promised a seed who would eventually solve the sin problem. And Abraham was promised a seed. So the seed can mean a nation, like a lot of descendants, a lot of people coming after you, but it also can refer to one person, to a specific seed. So let's keep that in mind. Then if we go on, it also says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's promised a kingdom. And then last, if you look in verse 14, it says, I will be his father and he will be my son. So he is promised a son of God, essentially. That's where it kind of looks back to the seed. Who is this seed? Who is this son of God? Now, the interesting thing is that this links two previous promises that God has made. We already have talked about Eve and Abraham, but let's look more closely at Abraham in Genesis 12 and what God promises him. He promises him land, a specific land of Israel. He promises this seed or descendants that he will be a great nation, and he promises that he will be a blessing to all people. So those promises are reiterated here. The kingdom is the land. The nation that he promised to Abraham is the same as the descendants he's promising to David, but there's a little bit more
more to it, and that is that there will be a specific descendant as well who is the Son of God. So let's stop and think a second about what it would be like to be in that time. It would have seemed like this promise is being made to David's son, his actual direct descendant, that his son would fulfill this promise. And so in a moment, we'll look at Solomon, who is David's son and the next king of Israel, to see if he really does fulfill this promise. But I also want to make a note that a lot of prophecies, and this applies to covenants as well, they have a double meaning. A, a sort of a now and not yet, a meaning that, that applies now and that we'll see is fulfilled in Solomon, but also a not yet, something that is still to come, an even greater application of this promise. So before we, want, we move on to Solomon, I want to make one more note on David. You know, we often look at the characters in the Bible as heroes that we should look up to, and definitely David is one of them. But when we really look at David's life, or at all of these biblical heroes, we're often disappointed by their failure. And that's actually because the story is not about them, but about God and how he is working in this world. So we do see some major failings on David's part. His sin with Bathsheba and covering it up by killing her husband, among other things. If you read the whole story in First and Second Samuel, you see other things that David does as well. But... We also see repentance because David himself realized that life is not about himself, not about his own greatness as king, but about God and about his plan. Okay, so now let's turn to David's successor, his son Solomon, and we'll see if God's promise to David will be fulfilled through Solomon. So when David dies, he appoints his son Solomon as his successor, and it does take a little bit of work actually for Solomon to secure the kingdom, but he does eventually do that. And when Solomon comes to power, it looks like he could be the promised descendant. In fact, one of our first introductions to Solomon shows an amazing choice that he makes. So God tells Solomon that he will give him whatever he asks for, and Solomon asks God for wisdom to rule the people. So part of what makes this such an amazing choice is that it appears to be a reversal of what Adam and Eve chose in the garden. So they had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were instructed not to eat from it. And the implication is that God would give them his wisdom in his time. But instead, they chose to take it on their own. They took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than waiting for God's wisdom. So here we see Solomon choose the opposite. He's offered anything. He could have whatever he wants. But instead of taking, he says, please, I will wait for you. I will wait for your wisdom. Please give me wisdom. And it only seems to get better from there. If we look at 1 Kings 4, it's actually 1 Kings that talks about Solomon, we see that Solomon brought Israel to a place of unprecedented prosperity. If you look at 1 Kings 4.20, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. So there we have this huge nation that was promised. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing, it says. So again, there's wealth and prosperity. It says, 
in verse 21, Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. So there's the land. They have this huge amount of land. And if we go on to verse 24, it says again, he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And in verse 24, he had peace on all his surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. So not only does he have land, he has peace. And everybody has what they need. Each person has his own vine and his own fig tree. So it does seem like this might be the fulfillment of God's promise. And clearly Solomon thinks so as well. Actually, if you look at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, it says, The Lord my God has now given me rest on every side. There is no enemy or crisis. So I plan to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, according to what the Lord promised my father David. I will put your son on your throne in your place, and he will build the temple for my name. So Solomon clearly saw God's promise as referring to himself. He was the son who would be on the throne. He would build the temple for God. And he does build a beautiful temple. So at this point in the story, we are thinking this is it. This is God's fulfillment of the promise and his answer to the sin problem. But is it? <laughs> I'm actually going to leave you here for now for this episode because I want to leave you with the joy that the Israelites must have felt in thinking God's promises being fulfilled. But I also want to leave you with this question. What will it take to keep this prosperity? What is it going to take for Israel to remain in this state of prosperity where they are? Is it guaranteed forever? The Israelites seem to think so. But it also seems like God's covenant is greater than just one king. It seems like his promise isn't just for one great king to rule on the throne. It's more than that. So you'll have to join us again next time to see how Solomon's life works out and what happens to the nation of Israel after that. Is this really the fulfillment of the promise? So thanks for listening, and I hope that you'll join us again next time for Building a Bridge to God's Word. <laughs>